Hello, everyone. Al Madrigal from the All Things Comedy Network. Uh, quick message about fundraising. Thank you so much for listening to an All Things Comedy podcast that you are supporting here. We have a sticker uh, that you can buy for five bucks. It says, I support All Things Comedy. If you can go to TubeStart.com, we have a brief campaign going to support our new studio. No one's making money off of this. We're hoping to just have this studio support the comics and make sure they can record in a great place at no charge. And thanks to you. All right. Appreciate it. Allthingscomedy.com, tubestart.com. Thank you very much. Coming to you from New York City, this week and every week, it's the Ben Kissel Show. Um, let's see, Jeff. So you got this book, Make Them Laugh. Is there anything else going on? Well, my Sirius XM with Ron and Fez. We should talk about that. Okay. I'm a regular, and I bring on a special celebrity guest friend every week, like Colin Quinn, Artie Lang, Russell Peters, Lisa Great. Lampanelli. So I brought on about 40 big stars already. Oh, my. We'll keep that in. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, I'm Ben Kissel, joined by Mike Coscarelli, Micah Fox. How are you, Micah? Great. You know. Well, I don't know. How are you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm always terrible. What do you want? Very good. All right. T- today's a big day, Micah. Because you and I are officially comedians, because today's guest, we met him. And apparently you can't be a comedian uh, a comedian unless you meet him, Jeffrey Gurian. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, I'm thrilled to be here, man. Absolutely. And if you're wondering who the fuck he is, uh, go to YouTube and Google who the fuck is Jeffrey Gurian, and uh, you're going to see um, he's about as well-known as anybody else uh, that there is. Well, no. He's more well-known than anybody else in comedy. It's him and Ronald McDonald. That's it's it. Ridiculous That's ridiculous. Two it most is. well-known. Yeah. It's crazy. Which is I, I know. I know Micah. Yeah, I've already been a comedian, Ben. Well, nice it's to new to me. <laughs> it's all new to me, and I'm very excited. I really hope I can live up to my expectations of myself. Well, I'm excited, too. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Jeff, when, did you, uh, when did you start getting into the comedy biz? Oh, man. Uh, in biblical times. Right. <laughs> yes. I was at the roast of Moses. I, I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been comedy, man, it's f- like forever. I actually got my original start professionally in around 77 when I went up to Saturday Night Live and um, met Alan's Bell. I was oh, doing... Yeah. Um, I, um, that's a crazy story. I was driving a pimp mobile in those days. I a was pimp driving, mobile? Yeah, was, was that just a, was that like a hot dog stand, or you weren't trying no, to get girls a, like me? It was a Mandarin orange El Dorado that had been made for one of the Isley brothers, and he decided not to take it, and I took it, and I totally pimped it out. I had met this pimp from Maryland, and I was very impressed with his lifestyle. Right. He had this gold El Dorado, and it had a clear bubble over the driver's seat and a clear bubble over the passenger seat, and that's who I aspired to be. So I bought this Mandarin orange El Dorado. I went to this place in the Bronx, and this story was confirmed for me just last year, which I'll tell you, but they told me that it was made for one of the Isley brothers, and I had no reason to doubt them. So I take the thing, and I go someplace, and I buy this Rolls Royce grill (laughs) like the pimps drove, and it had big white wall tires and straps in the back, and... My wife is like, we're Jewish and we live in Scarsdale. Why am I driving an orange car? Because <laughs> you're the luckiest woman on earth, honey. And I, I'm like, you don't get it. You don't get it. Anyway, I pull up to 30 Rock and I I had been making films already, like Super 8 sound films on mm-hmm. the street. And they were like very strange films, you know, like several men were arrested today for, for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women who wore their stockings rolled down like bagels. Oh, my God. You ever goodness. see the old women yeah. with this? It looks yeah. like fucking bagels to me, man. So I got my own grandmother, my dear grandmother, to shoot a film with me where she <laughs> let me put cream cheese on her ankles. And she said, only for you would I do this. Oh, and, yeah. I'd and, get arrested for being the guy trying to lick it off. She made believe she had a Jewish accent. Her name was Mrs. Ogoyim. Ogoyim? <laughs> Ogoyim. Oh, and she my. lived in the Bronx. And she told this story of how, you know, she's like, Jewish people, we have two kind of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. This this crazy man, he smeared cream cheese on my meat stockings and I can't get it off. And I zoom in on the stockings and the cream cheese are on her ankles. So anyway, I take these films and I pull up to Saturday Night Live because in those days you could pull up in front of the building. There there was no terrorism and shit. You could just fucking go there. And you had your pimp car, so Belushi thought you had coke. So he's like, let him in, let him in. Well, what happened is I pulled up in front of the building and I throw the doorman a few bucks and I say, Lauren Michaels is expecting me. (laughs) And with a car like that, he had no 
no reason to doubt me. They watch my car. I go in. I sneak past the security because you could do that in those days. Right. I get in the elevator. I go up to the 17th floor. Alan's Bell is playing handball with one of the producers, a guy named Neil Levy, who I believe was Lorne Michaels' cousin. Okay. I get them to look at this, my stuff, with the cream cheese on the ankles. And I was also doing something called the Masters of Disguise, two master criminals who disguise themselves as inanimate objects to commit their crimes. So it starts out with two men disguised as coats rob a hat store. <laughs> they come in over the arms of two other men and they say, just act natural like we're your coats and nobody will get hurt. Right. <laughs> and so I did many crimes like this and I would interview the victims who would say, you know, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I'm going into this hat store. Right. And two men put guns in my in, in my stomach and they say, just act natural like we're your coats and nobody will get hurt. So I bring this up to SNL. Alan Zweibel sees it. He goes, this is great. I never saw anything like this and calls his manager for me. Not even sends me the number, but calls for me. Right. Well, there was no texting in those days. You couldn't text. There yeah, were no cell phones. And it was David Jonas, the guy who had discovered Freddie Prinze. He was managing wow. him, who got him Chico and the Man. And he was working with comedians like Dick Capri and Freddie Roman. And that's how I got started writing jokes, by him sending me there. And I, But I... It took me about a year to learn how to write a joke because I was thinking wow. like men dancing with tools, you know, uh, men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. And that's why the arts are so amazing, especially comedy. You know, you went from rubbing cream cheese on your grandmother's <laughs> ankles. swollen ankles <laughs> right. to exactly. writing uh, and working with the manager of Freddie Prince. Yeah, exactly. Only in this business would you get Can awarded you for rubbing cream cheese all over an elderly woman. <laughs> <laughs> who just so desperately wants you to succeed that she allows you to do she it. She allows you to do it. She no was kid. such a kind, she had such a great sense of humor. And this she is the did beginning a great of, Jewish accent. Yeah. <laughs> a great Jewish accent. And I used her again. You know, I did uh, two men disguised as jewelry, r robbed a local emporium, a jewelry shop. Yeah. And they come in on the front of her dress. <laughs> and I said, when did you realize that, they were men, that these were men and not jewelry? And she said, well, I was looking in the, a jewelry store window and suddenly the jewelry that I had on became so heavy that it actually made me stoop. She said, and this is how I had to walk. And she walked all bent over. And, and I said, well, what? she said, one of, the, one of the robbers was disguised as a stick pin. She said, and I, and I screamed. And a security guard wrestled the stick pin to the ground. But unfortunately, it got away. And she was such a good actress. Guys dressed as so good. guys dressed as coats. Guys dressed as jewelries, cream cheese. What drugs were you on when you were writing this? Yeah, that was just that's my head. I love silly humor. I before the Pythons did the Ministry of Silly Walks, right. I did a film called Men Who Walk Low for a Living and Enjoy It. Those hacks. Those hacks. The Pythons stole it from Gurian. And then uh, no. uh, Dana Carvey steals the. The master of disguise. Yes, yes, that was a big thing. I had showed that to many, many people. That's why so, people have to ask who the fuck you are. People are trying to keep you down. <laughs> trying to keep me They're down. They're stealing your ideas. They've been doing a good job at it, too. <laughs> well, I don't An like excellent it one job. Not so anymore. anyway, so that's how I got started. And that's how I got started writing. And then I, in around 1980, I started writing for Rodney. That's and that great. was cool because then he was doing my stuff on King. the Tonight Show. Rodney King, yes. Mm. Um, I yes. try to write for civil rights leaders yes. and some amazing. <laughs> Rodney King has some of the most iconic lines of the '90s. So if you did write for him, I would say that you're a genius. I settled for writing for Rodney Dangerfield. Ah, that was, that yes. was enough for me. Yes. Who cares? Only one Rodney. You only need one Rodney in your resume. <laughs> God, and then this and whole story is going to conclude with, and then finally he made it when Ben Kissel called him to come and do his podcast exactly. for this all the things highlight comedy. Of my day. I love it. Absolutely. It, it is, is 5 a.m. It's great. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, what were some of your inspirations growing up comedically? I mean, did you always want to do comedy? I mean, I yeah, feel like Yeah, since I was, was 12, I was writing yeah. I was writing things. Since I was, when I was 12 years old, I decided two things. I thought I wanted to be a dentist, and I, and I wanted to write comedy. And I was always, I started writing comedy. That, you know, like so just those silly are, things for my friends, you know. I would say those are the two killing Most, animals. A lot of people say, <laughs> oh, serial killers kill animals at a young age. Sociopaths, they might, uh, you know, prick their sister with a, with a needle and enjoy her pain. I think wanting to be a dentist and wanting to be a comedian, those are two of the largest indicators that you are possibly a sociopath. Right. What 12-year-old 12, 12 is walking around looking at all the kids with teeth in their mouths being like, I could mess with those. I like to get my fingers on those uh, dentures. And it makes perfect sense because when you're a dentist, the audience doesn't have the opportunity to tell you you suck. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very strange choice to make. It really is. How long were you a dentist for? Cindy Adams said she says she figured out the connection that I made people laugh to see if they had any teeth missing. That was just it. drumming up I was some a business for quite a while. I was a dentist while I was writing for Joan Rivers and okay. for Friars Roast and for a long time. And How? then I and then I taught at NYU as a professor in oral medicine and oral facial pain, and I did that. <laughs> wow. Uh, and well. you know, so I, I had that. My life was always split between those two things: the yin and the yang of the mouth. When Jeffrey Gurian. When I wrote yep. for Joan, you know, it's funny because I thought that she knew about my other career because I never told people. Right. And my friends would be like, you're the only guy I know who's embarrassed to be a doctor. <laughs> You'd think you were <laughs> shoveling shit off the street, you know. And I was like, well, you know, so I had met Joan. It was at the uh, Richard Pryor roast in 1991. Okay. And uh, I got a message that Joan wanted to talk to me about writing for her. And I was going to write material for her for that roast. But for some reason, she decided not to do it. And a few months later, I got called to meet her at her home. Okay. And I thought she knew about my other career because most people don't respect writers enough to invite them to their home. Mm-hmm. But Comedy they do dentists. And, but they do. If you're a doctor, people give you more respect than if you're a, a young comedy writer. So I thought she knew. Anyway, I show up at her house and a doorman says to me, you have to wait a few minutes because she just sprained her ankle and she's in a lot of pain. And I'm like, great. OK, so I'm sitting there waiting and I think, wow, maybe I could write her a prescription for painkillers and I'll be a hero and then she'll hire me. <laughs> <laughs> and so then when I finally went up to her house, she introduced me to everyone. There was a group of people there as Mr. Gurian. So I realized that she didn't know. So I kept it to myself. And she wound up hiring me. We worked together, and everything was great. And she and just thought all the painkillers you were giving her were from the just, street. Yeah, she had no idea I was writing them. Yeah. And, and then one day, her assistant, Robin, saw something about me on TV. So I'm in my office, and my nurse knows, never disturb me unless it's show business. Right. So she would come in, and she'd say, you know, she would say to me, Dr. Burl is on the phone. Dr. Lewis is calling, you know. The only one that no one believed was Dr. Dangerfield. There was no such thing. Anyway, one morning she comes in, she goes, Dr. Rivers is on the phone for you from Las Vegas. I said, oh, excuse me, I got to take this call. And Joan is like, "Uh, what do you do during the day? And I said, well, I work. And she said, well, obviously, but what is it that you do exactly? So I knew she knew. So I said, listen, is this concerning the vicious rumor going around that I'm a dentist? Because I've heard of accusing people of a lot of things, but that's really low. (laughs) (laughs) And she thought it was so funny. She's like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, because no one hires you in show business because you're a dentist. They hire you in spite of it. Right. And she just thought it was a hoot. And we got along so great. She was such a wonderful person. She was one of the nicest people, really, that I ever worked with. Yeah. Just a spectacular person. And it's such a a tremendous loss that she's not here anymore. Mm. Yeah, it, it was so unbelievably sad. How many years did you write for Joan for? No, it was less than a year. I was under contract to her. But we stayed in touch, and I would see her periodically. And as a matter of fact, I saw her on June 30th. She came up to Sirius XM to do uh, one of those special unmasked interviews with Ron Bennington. That's his specialty for the Ron and Fez show. He does these incredible interviews. He just did Dice Clay last week. uh, Nice. Like all huge stories. He's done over 100 of them. In one week, he did the Farrelly brothers, Ron White, and then on Friday, he did Dice Clay, which is an amazing thing. So he did Joan Rivers. Yeah. And we reconnected again. I had seen her up there. I had seen her the year before, actually. She was in Montreal hosting a gala at the Just for Laughs Festival. Right. And they were secluding her in the back, and no one could come in. And then when she saw me, she was so nice. She gave me a big hug, and how are you? And she was there uh, with uh, Larry Amaros. You know Larry? I don't know him, no. no he, he worked on her new book with her, D- uh, Diary of a Mad Diva. Okay. Which was phenomenal. And, and I had my book with me, and she was more interested in my book. I right. was asking her about hers, and she was asking me very insightful questions about my book. And I said, Joan, let me give you a copy. And she said, absolutely not. She goes, I want to buy a copy. I want to support you in the book. That's the kind of kind person that she was. And she had her assistant take a picture of the cover of my book so she could go home and order it. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? Well, she could afford it. And your your, your book is uh, Make Them Laugh, right? Make Them Laugh. It's about the history of the comic strip. Um, and Chris Rock wrote the introduction to it. That's great. It was, it was a wonderful, it was a, really a labor of love. It took me four years to finish that book. It was, well, it'll take me five years to read it. I am not very quick with the uh, with the words on paper. That's not your copy, by the way. Oh, I can't keep this? <laughs> oh, I have to get you one. I'll take I'm a wait picture for... of it, Ben. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, if you could record yeah. an audiobook, yes. that would be perfect for me. I would love that. Dangerfield and, uh, and Joan Rivers, they're a little bit blue. They, they like uh, some... Um, 
more uh, sexually explicit material and things like that that everybody loves. Is that your favorite style? No, uh, not at all. I actually work very clean. My act is mostly clean. My own act. Yeah. You know? Except for I'll, that I'll fetish bagel cream cheese act. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, well, no. that's like silly. I like silly. Yeah, you know? to you, but who to knows, people, my, if it's on YouTube people are now. getting it, off on. Yeah. It's well, crazy it, out there. It's mm-hmm. similar to the film that I did, uh, Men men Who um, Smear Cream Cheese Across Their Eyeglasses in the Presence of Beautiful Women. Yeah. Oh, this is Because this is there sick. are men who do that. <laughs> this is smut. <laughs> And I started that crazy years ago. I was very shy. I'd go up to girls at parties like as if I was very shy. And then in the middle of the conversation, I would have cream cheese in my hand already. And I would just <laughs> smear it across my glasses oh, man. and just keep talking as if I had no idea <laughs> what I just did. And the girls would be fucking astonished. They'd be like, they wouldn't really yeah. know what to Because what do you say? Do they stop talking the or do they like, just keep going? They're just looking at me. And I'm like, I just keep going with the conversation like it was nothing, you know? It's a confusing cat call. It, it's an unusual yeah. thing to did do. Did they ever approach you and just start licking it off? Was that the intention? No, I don't think it ever got to that. Sometimes I would actually put like an olive in the cream cheese and it would be like stack on my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing things with my glasses. So, Jeffrey, let yeah. me ask you, have you ever had sex before? No, well, no, but I'm working up to it. Yeah. Yes, I almost did on the night I stayed up late. Wow. Yeah, but I swore I would never do that again. No, no, <laughs> it's too hard. No, it's much too hard, much too hard. So you tend to style, you tend to do clean comedy yourself. Was there any ever conflict uh, where, where you you were writing for a comedian and they wanted to go super blue and they were just like, make it darker, make it blue, or make it more explicit, and you were just like, I can't? Or... No, never. I wrote for Dice Clay. Oh, uh, Jesus. I was one of the few people, and he confirm that you know i saw him last week after not seeing him for 16 years wow and i brought this picture of me taking away a headache from him i'm i'm, I'm involved in healing and, and and energy work and my specialty was taking away headaches so i'm sitting with him in mel's diner in la and um we're talking and all of a sudden he gets a bad headache and so we're we're we sat on the curb of Mel's Diner in the street in L.A., and I'm taking away his headache, and somebody took a picture of us. Yeah, I'm sure. And I had the picture, and I brought it to Sirius XM, and when he saw it, he started hugging me. He's like, not only, he goes, I remember you so well. I hadn't seen him in all these years. He goes, so many people come over to me, and they tell me they knew me from years ago, and uh, I don't remember them. He goes, I remember you so well. And he even remembered the jokes that I wrote. If you're a comedy writer, you have to be able to write whatever the person needs, your own personal feeling doesn't really come into play you have right. to write in the voice of the comedian and so what i would usually do is you know if i wasn't familiar with their act i would have them send me a tape and i would listen to it and a good writer can think in the voice of the person that you're writing for you have right. to because one comic shouldn't theoretically be able to do another comic's jokes right mm-hmm. right although at the comic strip one year they used to do that i think it was new year's like jerry seinfeld would do larry miller's act and larry <laughs> would do jerry's act and they would switch around yeah there's a thing there like that thing called like, shtick or treat that happens like now where everyone does oh really yeah so it, well it started of, back then they yeah. always say there's nothing new in comedy but that's one right. of the things that they used to do at the comic strip so no i was able to write in the voice of the person because that's to me, that's what you do when you're a writer. You can't just right. stick to just one thing. But for my own personal stuff, I'm mostly clean. Andrew Dice Clay is one of the greatest jokes of all time. He was having sex with a gal. I'll just pa- paraphrase it. He was having sex with a beautiful woman, I can only imagine. She went to the bathroom. He started jacking off. She came back, and then he says, uh, two pumps and I'm done. So he was. Uh, I always thought that was kind of a funny bit. Uh, you He's know. hysterical, man. <laughs> it's He's funny, because, and that's what I do with my sex. If I'm having sex with a woman, and then she goes to the bathroom, then I just jack off furiously, and then when she comes, then uh, you know, when she enters the room, then I'm pretty much done. And uh, the, the, the Why punchline... Why did you clarify, though, if I'm having sex with a woman? Is well, that, is, I, I'm, is, I'm just... Does I'm, it differ when you have sex with a man? Well, when I have sex with a guy, I'm all in. You <laughs> know, all in. I run to the You're bathroom like, and hope he <laughs> jacks off, so when I get in there, it won't, be, it won't last so long. Exactly. Um, which is a pretty good time for me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, uh, everyone should just get sex advice from Andrew Dice Clay from 1989. <laughs> He's such a funny dude, man. He's he was. so funny. What was the thought process going in writing for someone like Dangerfield who like strings his uh, jokes around? Uh, uh, he considers him a pearl necklace type thing. Uh, forgive the uh, disgusting sexual uh, innuendo compared to someone like Dice Clay who is a little bit more storyteller. Um you well, know, more long-winded. Rodney had the best hook of all time, you know, no respect. Right. So when you write for somebody, you try to, like, zero in on what their stage persona is, you know. And writing for Rodney was really, 
probably one of the most fun times that I ever had doing because we'd hang out in his club, you know, right. and, and he'd be in his pajamas and bathrobe because that's how he walked around the club. He And not even <laughs> a nice pajamas and bathrobe, just the pajamas and bathrobe. That's why he'd be sitting in his little room downstairs and I'd go right. and ha- I'd hang out with him there. And, and he would tell me jokes like, uh, Jeff, what's the difference between Jews and Italians? And I'd be like, I don't know, Rodney, what's the difference? He goes, they both take a leak in the sink, but the Jews take the dishes out first. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but he was going to mention how Jews enjoy cream cheese on their ankles and Italians no, like it on their No, it was like amazing hanging out with him. And he was like, you know, we were talking about uh, who, hip one night. Like, who's hip? Because that was yeah. a big expression in those days. Everybody was hip, you know. Rodney was the hippest guy there was. He goes, Jeff, you know who's hip? I'm like, who, Rodney? He says, two guys in the village. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, yeah. That's who's hip. Two guys in the village, you know. I told Paul Schaefer that joke. He fucking fell down. Because Paul Schaefer's <laughs> the hippest man in show business. And, you know, it's important to know those things. So coming yeah. from Rodney, I mean, it was amazing. And his best friend was a guy named Joe Ansis. Okay. They sold aluminum siding together. Right. And theoretically... It was Joe Ansis that Lenny Bruce patterned his act after. Joe Ansis was the funniest guy that never went on stage. Really? Yeah, there used to be a table. This was even before me that there was a table at a place called Hanson's where they would all hang out. And Joe Ansis was always the funniest guy at the table. Right. And I got to meet him and we hung out, you know. But, I mean, those were crazy days. What were his thoughts on Lenny Bruce stealing his act? It's written up in books. I don't remember those exact things, but a lot of people said that, 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 yeah. that Lenny Bruce patterned his stuff on what Joe Ansis did. If you read about Rodney, it'll probably be in there because right. he was a very big part of Rodney's life. They were best friends. Andrew Dice Clay, Rodney Dangerfield. Why do uh, comedians dress so poorly? Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's one of the things that kept me from performing for years. Yeah, because you dress, you're, you're so sharp. You're unbelievably uh, well-styled. Your hair is immaculate. I didn't have old enough clothes. That's what kept me off stage. Most comics, <laughs> they want to look like Not they're homeless. Sti- yeah, yeah. Like they're fucking homeless. I'm, I'm gonna like, get I don't you a get hoodie. It. We're gonna rejuvenate your career, Gurian. I'll It'll try. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's what I'm gonna need. Look at this kid. Look at this kid across from us. He's a. He's hip. This could be you. It's like dressing down. You're like David Tell goes on stage with his hoodie, with his baseball cap. And right. He's funny as shit. But he himself says he looks like the homeless man that should be outside the theater. Yeah, it's right. not his jokes. It's that hoodie. The guy's just fucking funny, man. You know, Tom Rhodes is in town this weekend. He right. happens to be staying with me. He dresses up when he goes on stage. Yeah. Always looks good. He has a very commanding presence. I tell him he's like a gunslinger. He looks like a gunfighter from the Old West, like who would throw open the doors to the saloon. Right. And come in and just start telling jokes, firing off jokes instead of a gun, you know? I mean, uh, that would get you killed if you did it back in the you day. You did it but, back in the old yeah. West. <laughs> yeah, right. Times have changed, I guess. You pull out a gun with blanks and just start throwing bullets at people. Yeah, telling some bits. Was there ever, uh, was there ever a comedian that you met that you were just starstruck and you were just uh, just so honored to like even be in their presence and you were just well, like, I made Well, all of them, it. really. I mean, when I was on the phone with Milton Burrow, Milton was my sponsor in the Friars Club. Jesus Christ. And he was I, your sponsor in the Friar Milton yeah, Burrow. Yes, yeah. Oh, my I talk God. About, talk about an honor, right? Yeah. So when I would be on the phone with him, I, it was it was really surreal to me. Yeah. Because he was Mr. Television. Right. You don't even get to talk to Milton Burrow. And here I was like, I'm hanging out with him. And I would be pinching myself like, I'm, I'm with fucking Milton Burrow. Right. And this is like Mr. You know? Television. This isn't like, you know, 500 channels and you can just not be VCR. fat and run a goddamn pawn star. <laughs> right. You know, right. you can't run a pawn shop and get famous. I mean, he there was three channels. And he was one was dedicated entirely to him. And the reason he was Mr. Television was because people actually bought televisions to watch his show. Jesus. What I understand in the 1940s, people would line up in the streets and they would watch. The, they had TV shops where the, the TVs were just piled on top of each other, playing the shows, and people would line up and watch in the street. Mm-hmm. And that's how he became so famous. I mean, he was the ultimate. And right. when he when he used to host the the Friars roast, he was just the funniest, the funniest fuck. So the way I, I got to meet him was I wrote the line: uh, If Burl's cock had a blonde wig, it could pass for Paul Williams. <laughs> <laughs> and when he heard that joke, he's like, "Who wrote who wrote the Burl's cock joke?" That's what he used to call it. <laughs> it's the guy who rubbed cream cheese on his grandmother's ankles. He's a genius. Well, they brought me over to meet him. I think Dick Capri did the joke that night, and then he brought me over to meet Milton and. Milton liked that. And then I wrote many jokes about his member, because if you know, yeah. 
he was rumored to have the biggest schlong in show business. Well, he was the Seinfeld of his time. I can say it's not true. You knew personally. <laughs> yeah. Well, he showed it to me, and I thought a snake had gotten loose. <laughs> it was in the, I, I didn't ask to see it. We were in the men's room of the L.A. Friars Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's and just how big it is. And he suddenly said, yeah, he had to go into a separate room. Right. <laughs> and he said, Jeff, you want to see something? No! Before, before I had a chance to answer, it had gotten loose, and I turned he around. Asked. Yeah, it was polite that he asked. But he, Oh, my goodness. He was such a nice guy and such a fun person and just then i wrote a joke you know i did this book filthy funny and totally offensive in 2007 they had asked me to do a book about uh, celebrities favorite dirty jokes because i had written for the roast for a lot of years and i wrote this book with a guy named trip wetzel okay. uh, a journalist and um why now why did i start telling you that i lost my train of thought well it's an offensive uh, offensive comedy and you were doing the roast oh How? so yeah. oh oh so paul provenza wrote the intro okay because he's a good friend and he did the movie the aristocrats right so i start telling him this joke the first page and the last page were jokes that i had written for people and one of the jokes was you know milton M- milton would have been here tonight but he had a little accident he was fucking this chick in his hotel room, and on his way over to the bed, he accidentally tripped and pole vaulted out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and so, before I could finish right. the joke, Provenza is like, pole vault? You wrote the pole vaulting joke? I'm like, yeah, you know that joke? He goes, what, are you fucking kidding? Everybody knows that joke. I didn't know that the joke had become well known. Right, right. But that was the, that's how I met Milton, by writing jokes about his dick. As a writer, when you write a joke like the pole vault joke, which, by the way, if you're Milton, like all these all of these so-called roast jokes just about your massive schlong, yeah. I think he got off pretty light when it comes to being offended it in the roast. Oh, yeah, keep on doing the jokes about how my dick is it's massive so yeah. and how everybody wants to suck on it. Like the LAPD is using it for a battering ram. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then the, the fire department's using it for a hose. Using Burl's cock, yeah. So, but that must be a great reward as a writer. You're in the back, you know. You're not on the stage necessarily, uh, not all the time. Obviously, you're on the stage regularly. But that must be a huge payoff for you. It's sort of a, a slow burn when people find out that you're. It's like the Wizard, you know, or what do you, the Wizard of Oz, you know, when the curtains finally revealed and you're the Wizard and people are just stunned uh, that it was you. I mean, well, that has those, to be a huge compliment. It was a huge compliment. But in those days, I always had to. I always asked permission whether it's okay to say that I wrote because, right, especially you know these days most young don't work with writers but in, in the old days it was established that you'd work with writers it was accepted there was nothing wrong with it but a lot of times people didn't want it known that they were right. working with writers he'd never minded and I would I always ask people is it cool to say you know and he was always very cool about that and yeah it was a huge honor yeah and, and that was when the who the fuck is this guy first started because when I would come in Milton would come and grab me and walk around with me with his arm around me and you know he's like the biggest star in the world. People are thinking, who the fuck is that guy? Right, yeah. right. You know? So that, but I didn't have video of that in those days. We took a lot of pictures together, but I didn't have video of that, of somebody. But I, you could tell what they were thinking. But you do have that you know? presence. I mean, I've seen you around for years um, in the few times that I've done uh, comedy at the stand-up comedy clubs here in New York City. And you do have that sort of like, um, like yeah, what, what's this guy all about? You knew, like As soon as I saw you, I was like, I have to talk to him. Have to figure out what's going on well, in this brain. So nice. But this is a person. This is this is on purpose. You're 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 very like image conscious. I mean, that's why well, you got the pimp mobile, and it's why you. No one can do it on purpose. You do what's comfortable for you. Right. Everyone has a persona. You 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 know, Micah, you yourself. You you have a persona that you create that you right. develop. You all start out as infants, and then as things happen to you in your life, you create a look for yourself. You create how you dress, whatever feels comfortable to you. Well, I'm six foot so, seven, so. God right, so, really so. <laughs> gave me a small forced his hand on this one. Yeah, don't hardly have a lot anyone of notices. Right, talking about noticing people. Yeah, you can't not. You're like right. the Mount Rushmore of comedy. So when you show up, people are going to know you're there. He's got four heads. It's horrendous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the differences now? Because obviously the roasts have been going on for so long. I love watching those old, um, the old. Uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting the name. Very famous, always drunk, Dean Martin. The Dean Martin roast. The old Dean Martin roast were so phenomenal. You had Ralph Nader was on them. Uh, Hilarious the, uh, guy. Barry, he was. Yeah, right, Barry of all Gold- people to pick for the first time. <laughs> right. They had a lot of politicians no, but on. This That's is what, what sold up, the show. Buckle up, kids. <laughs> 
It's gonna be a it's gonna be a wild but yet conservative time. Uh, but you know, Barry Goldwater, that was the old roast, and the, the the bits were more racial. I think they were more socially aware in some ways. How do you think the roasts have changed from back then to now? Because in nowadays, can you imagine a Comedy Central roast where Chris Christie's just sitting there? I mean, it would that would he would be not electable? Well, you know what? For, well, first of all, the Dean Martin roasts were like. I think they were taken from the Friars Roast because the Friars Roast have been around way right. before that. I don't have my Friars book with me, but they've been going on a long, probably 70 years. Right. Because uh, the Friars Club is over 100 years old. Um, so the Dean Martin Roasts were sanitized. They were clean because they were on television. Right. You know, as a matter of fact, the comedians in those didn't want people to hear the Friars Roast. Burl was always fond of saying, never work blue. That was the expression they used, blue humor, and I never know. Well, let knows. me show you my cock real fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but that's what I'm saying. There was a real, there was a real um, dichotomy between their stage persona and their, you know, what they did in real life. Right. To the public, you always want to look clean. When you're private, you'd say whatever you want. That was the thinking then, you know. Roasts these days have become very mean spirited. You think so? Yeah. Well, I know so. I listen to them. You see, you know that. There's almost nothing left to say about right. people. So instead of just being clever, they're really very mean-spirited and really pick on people. When I used to write for the roast, I would always ask, is there something that the roasty is sensitive about that they don't want said? And then I wouldn't write jokes about it. Sure. Some people are comfortable being bald. Some people are sensitive about it. Some people are, com- are not comfortable about their weight. I would just ask before I wrote right. stuff about it. These days they ask, and then they write jokes about the stuff that the person is uncomfortable about. They purposely, you know, do that. One of the meanest was the Chevy Chase roast. I think it was the third roast. And he was really hurt by that. And he said it at the event that he was right. really hurt by Well, now, that's the the irony of being roasted is you have to be loved. Otherwise, I mean, everyone well, hates Roy Chevy Chase that. in real life, right? Well, and no, none of the people that he knew were really there. There right. was a, a dais full of people that he didn't know. And yeah, people I, made jokes <laughs> that nobody showed up. Uh, none of his old friends showed up to support him. Jeffrey Ross wrote... Uh, that book, you know, we only roast the ones we love. Right. He's the, the roast master general. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, and he just did this thing, uh, a roast battle, last week at the New York Comedy Festival. Yep, yeah, we, we were, there. were there. Yeah, so, you know, it's a different thing. Um, Jeffrey is great as a roaster, but the roasts in general, they tend to be meaner these days. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just, I guess, people have become numb to insults over the years, and now they're just, everybody tries to top each other. Well, it's like that whole YouTube generation. All you want to do is see people fail. It's like, you know, a whole genre of entertainment is just failure, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, hey, if we've got some professional who can point out your failure in a really clever way, even better. Well, that's why I like doing the Ron and Fez show on Sirius because it's a very gracious kind of show. It's not, excuse me, it's not a mean-spirited show. The Ron and Fez show. And what channel is that on on Sirius? Raw Dog, Channel 99. It's the premier comedy channel uh yeah. they had been with opie and anthony f- for many years on that channel and then last january they moved over to the raw dog channel right and that's when i started with them well you know it's interesting you brought up uh milton burl showing his dong to you in the bathroom but of course keep it clean you know never go <laughs> blue the transparency is more than ever obviously now with uh we had like opie and anthony anthony got in trouble for uh you know filming that girl um i think it was in Times square it's a muddled story god knows what happened ends up getting fired obviously um his image was everyone's just like yeah that seems like something anthony might do but then you have somebody like cosby you know who is just like uh completely it's, it's people are stunned because you know he's the he's the sweater guy micah fox if you want to find some great cosby memes she well, was she's meme famous. You got to be careful on Twitter these days. First of all, that's a you whole do. other thing. Twitter can ruin your career. You say the wrong thing. You think it's funny. It's exactly. hard to be funny in less than 140 characters because you can't really explain your intention behind it. And once you put it out there, it's a little too late to try to explain afterwards. Oh, totally. I mean, look yeah. what happened to Artie Lang recently uh, with uh, Carrie Champion, although that was a little no, bit over the line. But, he, did you know. a, he did a number of tweets in succession about yeah. what a, you know his weird fetish and what uh, he'd like to do with her yeah right? yeah but um the cosby thing is weird because hannibal burris right had the courage i mean it takes a lot of courage to say something like that on stage we were talking about that the other day on the show you know i mean he had a choice and it would be easier to ignore it but he chose to say something about what was going on with cosby and now right. the whole thing blew up and all these people came forward and i understand that he performed last night in florida got a standing ovation standing ovation yeah so people 
people are strange in society. They will overlook things if they think you're talented or funny in some way. You get a pass on certain things. I don't know. It's it's gonna, it's going to be interesting to see how that thing plays out. Right. But I mean, it's different now. Like if people would have heard the stories of Milton whipping out his thing in in a in a bathroom, and God knows, like people like. But you see, nobody would tell that story right. in those days, because people would protect each other. Right. Because there was like kind of a code that you could behave one way off stage and another way on stage. But but Milton Berle wasn't showing it to like ladies and like then being like, now no, you got it. I mean, not. if he's showing it to Gurian in a he, bathroom, I'm just going to say. Well, you're relating it. it to Cosby, like, you know, who's no. a serial rapist. Milton right. Berle's just... No, no he I'm just, just saying, that as a joke. Yeah, right, I'm, no, no, joke. I'm not <laughs> relating it to yeah. Cosby in that way. Just making it clear. Uh, right. No, yeah. of course. You, we'll make a meme about Milton and we'll see if it goes viral. He was the ultimate gentleman. You know, right. he always was very, very classy, very well dressed. He was show business. He is Mr. Show Business. Milton, That's, that is. Yeah, these yeah. were legends, you know. They had a persona to keep up. You know, George Burns, Henny Youngman, those guys, Red Buttons, mm-hmm. the greats from that era. God, you know? I love Red Buttons. How do you ever come up with that name? I don't know. I, I forget <laughs> what his real name was. They all had Jewish names and they changed right. them, you know. In those days, it was mostly Jewish comedians, you know. Yeah. And it was very interesting. But it was so, I was thrilling for me when you asked that. I got to know them all. Right. George Burns? That was amazing. Yes, I have... Uh, How many cigars did George Burns actually smoke a day? That I couldn't answer that question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he smoked a, a lot of them. But, you know, I got to meet uh, George through Milton. Yeah. You know, and then I got to work with Henny Youngman on his 89th birthday roast for television and um, Red Buttons and um, Sid Caesar. You know, I mean... It was amazing to me. So, And I took pictures of all that. I'm right. so glad that I have photos from those days because my life never seemed real. So I always took pictures to kind of capture the moment. Yeah. And now I have like a comedy club in my house. It's crazy. It's I have like the pictures. original selfie guy over it here. It goes back like 30 years. Yeah, like crazy, crazy stuff. Do you think you could put uh, George Burns or uh, Caesar, do you think they could, you could transport them to 2014 and they would still kill? It's an interesting question because I think like, you know, I love like Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields and they're hysterical and young people would watch them and laugh today. But I don't know that they could have a career today. I don't think an agent would take them. Hmm. And why do you think that? so weird because everybody's looking for like the new hip thing and, you know, like where do you see like four brothers doing an act together or like, you know, or even two, two men. How many two men groups are you? It, excuse me? That's why it would be new again, maybe. Well, maybe. And I mean, have I mean, look, a polished act. Goodness. There are twins performing these days. The Lucas Brothers, the Stone Brothers. You know, There's a, yeah. a couple more of them whose names escape Sklar. me for the moment. The Sklar Brothers, yeah. But it's not common to see two men doing a comedy act. You know, Meanwhile, Abbott and Costello, uh, Laurel and Hardy, right, to right. me, were fucking hysterical. I loved seeing those kind of movies. You know, But I don't think that they could have a career today because they did silly stuff. I happen to love silly stuff. Right. The Pythons were a big influence on, you know, my stuff. I love yeah. that Woody Allen, his early stand up. Sure. You know, when he talks about he's walking down the street and a maniac threw a Bible out of a window at him. <laughs> and thank God he had a bullet in his pocket and the, because <laughs> the bullet deflected the Bible. Because if it hadn't been for that bullet, the Bible would have pierced his heart. Now, to me, right. that's like fucking genius. You know what I mean? I love Woody. And, and and he actually saw my earliest material. He read my stuff. Yeah. And he encouraged me to make a film out of it, which I did years later. The Men Who series were the, were the ideas that I showed Woody Allen. It was men who do very unusual things, like men who take a pitchfork to the movies. Right. Uh, men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. And <laughs> men who dance where they're not supposed to, which Peter Dinklage is in. You know Peter Dinklage from of course, Game yeah. of Thrones? Before he was famous, he was in my film dancing in the street in a no dancing zone oh that's hilarious he gets arrested well it said no dancing tuesdays and thursdays but he was just in the mood to dance and so a a, a cop runs over and arrests him dancing in a no no dancing zone and the the funny part was after the film we forgot to take the sign down we shot this like on broadway in 28th street (laughs) right and we covered a no parking sign my artist was great and he made a no dancing sign tuesdays and thursdays it showed up in the newspaper because it created a traffic jam because 
drivers were pulling up to park to read the sign and they're like no dancing <laughs> and it was like it wound up in the new york post oh that's hilarious and they found out that i did it and i was nervous that the mayor was gonna come after me for defacing a parking <laughs> sign but i didn't get in trouble for that yeah hopefully they have bigger things to deal with than the no dancing sign yeah hopefully the statute of limitations has passed when this show comes out on the air yeah that i don't get in trouble for the no dancing sign You've been around for so many years. What do you think? I mean, obviously, comedy is a uh, is a mirror of society. Why do you think it's gotten more aggressive or more brutal or more mean spirited, in your opinion, as opposed to more, you know, lighthearted and just sort of? Because um, society odd? has changed in general. Look with the reality shows. People want like horrible things. They want to see like scandal. They want to see your life fall apart. Right. There was a time. People were more supportive. You know, it's just it's a weird thing, uh, and and again, do you think people I think used it's to connect laugh? It to the reality yeah. shows, yeah. You know, I did the Real Housewives of New York last year. I you created, did it? Well, I created a comedy thing for them, and they filmed it at the Pit, and they filmed it in my house, and it hasn't aired yet, and it may not. And I think that it was because everyone got along. There was no right. There was no scandal. There, some friends of mine who were on the show came to me to create a comedy sketch for them. And I did it with a, a friend of mine from Cult Comedy Pictures. We wrote a sketch uh, for Countess Luann and Princess Carol. Mm -hmm. And it was about them. They wanted to make fun of their royal titles. Right. So we wrote this sketch, counterfeittitles.com, where you buy your title on the internet, that they don't have real titles, that they fucking bought their titles on the internet. So Bravo loved it, and they came to shoot it, and they came to my house. And as I said... They shot for days in my house at the pit. I went to Ali Faranakian. Yeah, the owner of the pit. gave us the pit, yeah. and it was wonderful. We shot there and the whole thing, and it hasn't aired. And my feeling was because there was no scandal behind it. Everyone right. was friendly, and we got along. They didn't make mistakes in the script. They shot this sketch, and it came out great. And so there was nothing to make fun of. Right, right. So I'm thinking maybe that's why it hasn't aired. You know, because everybody wants to see you implode. They want to see you make a mistake. They want to make fun of you in some way. And it's a, there's a lot of negative energy in our universe. Right. I don't do want to put that out. Do you think that's because they're seeing that on TV and then liking it? Or do the people ask for that? It's a cycle, man. You know, yeah. the more you see, the more you want it. It, it you know, it plays to a, like a lower... I can't think of the word. Like, well, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just human nature. I mean, you look back at the first reality show, which was The Real World, uh, which was an amazing. Uh, that, that was the first one was actually very good. Uh, that introduced Puck, who was amazing, and then Pedro, who had AIDS. He was the first um, television personality to actually have full-blown AIDS. But the biggest scandal on that show was not the AIDS. That wasn't even the storyline. It was the, the fingers in the peanut butter. It was butter. the fingers in the peanut butter. Everyone, as soon as reality producers realized that fingers in the peanut butter trumped AIDS, they're like, let's just get everyone putting fingers in everything, mm -hmm. and it's going to be a huge <laughs> scandal. Political comedians, I mean, obviously... But you're talking to Gurian, the fingers in the cream cheese. He's the originator right. yeah, of exactly. this bit. She's smearing, right. <laughs> Peanut butter across your glasses is something I haven't tried yet, but I will <laughs> when I leave here today. Put it on the glasses of someone with AIDS, and I think you might have I a hit. I could have a show. I could have a show. But uh, that's what reality TV is about. Right. They want scandal. They want fights. They want people saying bad yeah. shit about each other. You know? I don't come from that. I, it's not comfortable to me. I don't want to do that. Right. I want to... You know, I come from this fantasy world where people should play and get along. Yeah, it's a difference you know? between the audience laughing at and laughing with. And a yeah. good comedian makes them laugh with. Well, so much humor is self-deprecating, too. I mean, it's right. okay you want people to laugh at you. Like, you know, when you're on stage, every comedian makes remarks about their own persona, usually. And the audience laughs, and that's okay. But if someone said that about you in real life, you'd be horrified. You're like, who yeah. the fuck are you to make a remark like that to me? Right. You know. But we say it about ourselves on stage, and that's okay. You know. But it's like there's a difference between that and mean-spirited humor. Right. And there's a whole thing going on in our society. That's all people seem to want these days. What about political humor? Was there anybody, you know, were you writing in the 70s and 80s? And Yeah, but I don't know anything about political humor. I never got politics. It, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Somebody once said that politics is show business for ugly people. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, and Jeff Gurian said that. Uh. It, it makes <laughs> yeah. perfect sense to me. No, I don't like to judge right. people by appearance, but, but, it, but it's just weird because... And growing up, it's hard enough to take responsibility for your own life and your own family. Right. Who's sick enough that they want the responsibility for every person in a country? 
to me, you have to be very sick to be want to be the president of a country, to run a country. <laughs> you have to be a very sick human being. Well, you definitely have to be that. higher on the sociopath uh, charts yeah, than I mean, people who a, don't. It's not a normal thing to want to take on that responsibility of the lives and safety of everyone in your country. I don't know. So, you're really selling it. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> well, right away, to me, like that's what puts me off of politics. It's, it's a business of lying, bullshit. It's like the stock market. Right. It's not fucking real. You know, the only ones that make money are the brokers and the traders. The average guy gets beat. Right. You know, the market goes up and down, and they make money whether you're, whether the market is going up or down. The average guy is getting killed. Right. So there's so much phoniness in the country. So I avoid politics. It's not, you know, I do strange news, and once in a while I'll talk about something like that, but... You know, my man. thing is like man robs bank with his chin. Right. That's the kind of story I, I like. That's how That's unbelievably uh, difficult and disgusting politics are. You chose a, a business and entertainment for its wholesome values. Yes, of as course. As opposed to the political world in Washington. At least you laugh, man, in show business. What right. better thing is there than the comedy world? Always be being surrounded by people who are looking for the funny. Yeah. We mentioned lying and just dealing with bullshit. What was one of the uh, an event in your life that you just were fed up with this business because I, I mean co- people are constantly telling you one thing and and doing another and things fall through constantly rejection is you know that's oh, just it's every day horrible yeah you have to that's what's so amazing about it yeah and i don't think they lie to you on purpose i think they're just excited they tell you look i had three things that i lost i think in this past week you know yeah um people say all kinds of things and i think in the moment they're really excited about it and their intention is probably good but then somebody offers them something better or somebody says something about you that you don't know about. You never know what's going on in, in another person's mind. Right. That's the thing. You know, just think about how many people are divorced, right? Now, you can't get divorced unless you were married, mm-hmm. right? You can't just start out divorced. You have to be married first. Hold on. I'm writing then, this down. Yeah, and then you get the divorced, right? These are the steps, right? So you think, hopefully, you married a person that you thought you knew, mm. right? And right. you vowed to be together forever, now, look how that works out. Most right. of the time, it's like, I think, 60%. And then all these people are like, I, I had no idea they were like that. Well, right. you fucking chose that person to marry them. Well, how so many... if you don't know that person, how are you going to know anybody else in the world? You right. never know what people are thinking, what's going on in their mind. You know what they tell you, but you right. don't really know what's going on with them. And sometimes it's shocking. So people tell you shit that they don't mean or they have an ulterior motive. or You never know. It's based on every single thing that's happened to them before they met you. Right. How many years into a marriage do you admit to your significant other that you have the cream cheese on the ankle fetish? You got to tell them that up front. Up man. front, okay. It's like part so, of the prenup. Oh, I you see. Gotta say that. <laughs> Always have because the refrigerator stocked up. Yeah. You got to do that. You yeah. can't. You can't lead people on. They got to know from the outset that you carry a long spoon. <laughs> right. I think I do carry once in a while. I I can't believe I don't have my long spoon. I have my large pen. Yeah, you have a huge <laughs> pen. But, but I don't have. What's I don't, happening? I don't have. I usually carry... This is incredible. I interviewed Gurian, I don't know, five, six years ago. He had this pen. He had the spoon. The same pen? I he, have a smaller there it spoon. Is. No, this isn't yeah. the long one, though. But I must yeah. have, when I packed my pockets today, Good I God. had left the long spoon He's on. like Can a magician without a trick. It's just, it's Meanwhile, just a spoon. There, I'm there's fascinated a homeless, by There's spoons. a homeless guy missing his jacket. Uh, this is amazing. You're, you're, that's exactly how I imagined all the street sleepers. Uh, they have spoons and large pens in their pockets. You got to. There gotta, is no spoon. I carry things that make me happy. <laughs> that's the key. For that some reason, I'm fascinated by spoons. I, it's funny. I found the collage that I made when I was 16 years old, and there's a flying spoon in it. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? I don't even know what it's about. There's something about spoons that I enjoy. Is it huh. a sexual thing? Or you bring lately, it I'm very excited. I found the tiniest spoon. That is the tiniest spoon. Isn't that spoon. the tiniest spoon you've ever seen? Isn't that cute? Yes. So what do you do? You look at them, you hold them, you just... I, sometimes I taste things with them. Yeah. That's why I have the long spoon. Because like, yeah. like, what if you see something that's far away you want to taste? You have a mm-hmm. small spoon. You know how awkward that is? Yeah. You have a long spoon. You just go like that. Then you could taste it. It's great. Right. And for those people at home listening, if you look very closely at your mic, you'll be able to see the spoon. Yeah, exactly. You have to look very closely yeah. to the mic. Always uh, carry a spoon. And now I'll you. hold up pictures for you. Was there a moment in your life where you're like, thank God I have this spoon? This spoon. Always. I always think. That's why I'm shocked that yeah. I don't have that very long spoon because I was really comfortable carrying that. 
It's like, you know. You take it out of the pocket when you get home. But and you then, have to work up to it. Yeah. You can't start out with a long spoon. Yeah, you start, you start with out a, small. Have you ever well, gone? I, I grow them. I have, you know, if you ever come over, you'll see I have spoon plants. Okay. And they're near the terrace because they need a lot of light. What are your thoughts <laughs> on the spork? On the Would you ever carry a spork? Mm, no, it's funny because somebody gave me a sign. I like to, I like to fork after I spoon. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. I keep it on my on my fridge. <laughs> I'm just fat. I don't know. There's something about spoons that are nice. They <laughs> kind of fit into each other. People people like that. They always want to spoon with each other. You know, don't you do that when you yeah. lay down? Yeah, yeah, you yeah of course. Sp- it's natural. Yeah, so I, I mean, sex. I don't infinity. even like the sex. I just, just like want to a spoon. I'm a cuddle kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like terrible. swaying. Yeah. Right. You hardly find people into swaying in it. Remember in the 40s when people would just sway. I mean, there was time. a lot of time. They they had a lot they of time more to time. kill. <laughs> Well, and they were playing the national anthem a lot in those days, and that's what would cause people to sway mostly when they heard the national anthem. Right, causes they just an kind inner of, ear disruption. You can't hold onto the ground correctly. <laughs> they would kind of link arms and just mm-hmm. sway. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the old films, there were always people swaying. I'm trying to bring that back. <laughs> I think the country spoon at a needs time. more swaying. I agree. Hardly anyone sways. Nobody sways. You not go to near- a club. Nobody's swaying. That's a dancing yeah. I could get around. I can't do the twerking. I don't even enjoy it's watching hard. people do it, per se. Right. So, I want to watch somebody sway. sway. Trust me. I bet you if you tried, you could sway. When, I mean, when the show's finished, we'll give it a shot. We'll sway, but if I go falling too much in, the, in, in one direction, this whole building will go down. <laughs> we'll be like timber. Yeah, it'll be a nightmare. <laughs> like a redwood tree falling, right? Right. <laughs> It'd be crazy. But, well, you start out slow with swaying. Right. You start out to like a quiet tune. Mm-hmm. Nothing too crazy. And you get your Not way up like to like the... all about the bass. We don't want it to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll pick something mild for you yeah, to sway the... to. In the By beginning. that time, you're leaning. It's a whole other. It's problem. a whole other thing. Yeah. What advice do you have to uh, to a young comic who wants to uh, who wants to break into writing? Because I mean, that's the catch twenty. What is it? Twenty two. You have to have a job to get a job in this business. Yeah. Well, so what know, do you do to break in? It's different these days because when I was breaking in, you know, like. Everything seems to go back to terrorism and security. I could go to clubs and wait for comedians and then introduce myself to them and say, hey, I'm a writer. Can I write some stuff for you? You can't do that these days. Everyone thinks you're a stalker. You know, right. there's, the world is filled with lunatics. Well, that you seems ironic to me because it's also the most accessible we've ever been with each other. We're the most connected we've ever been. Well, because of the Internet, everybody right. feels they know each other. I have f- Facebook friends that come over to me all the time. I don't know who they are. They're like, yeah, we're friends on Facebook. It's it's very interesting to me that you can meet so many people and connect to people all over the world. I like that. Right. But for a young comedy writer, you feel like the you can't really connection. hang out anymore at the right. clubs and say, hey, I'm so-and-so waiting for them off stage because people get nervous when you approach them. You know, so that's when I first met Woody Allen. Even in those days, I was very nervous to approach him. I'm right. Like, what the fuck does he want to meet me for? So I brought a pretty girl with me because I thought to myself, mm. there's only two ways to prove you're sane. You either wear a tie or you bring a pretty girl with you. <laughs> right. And I didn't have a tie in those days. <laughs> I, o- I only knew one girl <laughs> and she hated me. <laughs> we had just broken up, but she was really pretty. And I begged her and I said, please come with me. We're going to meet Woody Allen and I can't go alone. And. So I was still in dental school at the time, and I was sending him notes backstage on my dental school cards, and I would drop by the theater, and I would leave notes with the stage manager as if I knew him. And I would right. say, Woody, it's Jeffrey. I'll be down to see you soon. And I thought I'd have God, to God, that is that terrifying. Yeah. It's scary. I'm but in those days, it was a different world. It wasn't right. like there was no, no one even used the word stalker, and it didn't happen. It wasn't, this is a long time ago. Right. So I would leave these notes and I would say, and I'm bring, I thought I'd have to say strange things to Woody. So I said, you know, well, I'm bringing my cardboard thumb and things like that, you know. And yeah. so anyway, the night of the performance, I bring her and I told him I was coming back during intermission. I left this one final card. I'll be back tonight. I didn't even know. I had no sense of show business. I don't know. You wait till the end of the show. I thought you go back during intermission and you right. say hello to somebody. So intermission comes and I'm really nervous and I don't want to go. She goes, you can't back out because I came with you. You got to do this. Right. So I go backstage and the stage manager is not in his seat. And I think, wow, this is great. I grab her hand. We run up the stairs and I'm on the roof. I went the wrong way. I come yeah, back. Yeah, you, you always go the wrong way I, if you're the on wrong the roof. Way, the wrong yeah. way. I come back down the stage manager's there and he says can I help you and I say Woody is expecting me and he says go right in 
Now today you'd have to have a note from your parents. You'd oh, have you to have like crazy shit. But in a those DNA days, sample, a retina like, scan. He's like, go right in, right? Right. So I go in, and Woody's dressing room is empty. He's in Tony Roberts' dressing room with the entire cast of the show. And now I'm, I'm nervous again. And she says, you have to do this because I'm not coming with you. So I said, okay. So I go up to the door and I remember this like yesterday. Woody is sitting on a couch across the room. The whole cast is in there. And I look into the, I peek in and I go like this to him. And like I'm crooking my finger for those people at home. Like come over. And he says, me? Like this, me? And I said, yes, you. And he comes over and he's actually holding my card that I sent him. And he says to me, you must be Jeff. And at that, I lost it. I mean, I'm meeting my idol. And I started saying crazy shit to him, like, let's open up a day camp and throw winter clothes at people. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and let's walk low like we used to in Europe. And he looks at the girl and he goes, this guy's a fucking nut, just like that. And I realized I was over anxious. I was overexcited. Right. I was like a kid, you know, meeting my idol. So I, I calmed down and I said to him, you know, a lot of people say that my writing is like yours. And he says, well, listen, I'm in the middle of a show do you think you could come back tomorrow night? And I'm like, no, I'm much too busy. <laughs> I said, of course I'll come back tomorrow night. So I begged the same girl to come with me, and she agreed to come with me. And I brought her back the next night, and he meets me after the show, and he sits with me. And I had all my ideas in, like, envelopes. They weren't even scripts. They had, like, little pieces of paper with shit on them. And it was the Men Who series and all that crazy shit. Yeah. And the next night, I'm much more relaxed, and I say to him, you know, the Aztecs weren't too good at tap dancing, but boy, could they sway. <laughs> I was already into swaying. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a spoon on you at the time? Probably, but I didn't show it to him. I was nervous about the swaying line. Anyway, <laughs> he's like, let me see your stuff. And he read through my stuff and he said to me, this is really very visual stuff and you should really make you should think of making a film out of it because it's really very visual. Yeah. Now, I had dreams that he was going to say, I'm leaving, let's go out on the road and make movies together. He never said any of that. Right. <laughs> he yeah. just read all my stuff and he goes, this is funny and it's visual and you should make a film out of it. And so years later, that's what inspired me to make the Men Who series. Yeah. You know, but I never forgot my experience with Woody and then I saw him in recent years, you know, and I walked, I actually made him laugh. Uh, we were being reunited by a friend of his, and I started to say to him, you know, his manager, Jack Rollins, who I think is 99 years old, has been very helpful to me in my career. He's always been very kind to me. And uh, I started to say, uh, hi, Woody, I'm a close friend of Jack Rollins, but instead it came out, hi, Woody, I'm a very close friend of yours. <laughs> 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 and he started to laugh, and he looked at me, he goes, really, how long do we know each other? Oh, that's hilarious. And I hilarious. said, decades. And he actually laughed. It was crazy, you know, <laughs> introducing someone as a very close friend of theirs. Yeah, you know? that's hilarious. Was nice. he, the, he, he was the number one get. He was the, the top of the mountain. If you could meet anybody, you got to meet him. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were only three people I ever wanted to meet, really, as a kid. It was Woody Allen, Salvador Dali, and the Beach Boys. And I got to meet all of them and spend an evening with them. Wow. It was amazing. Those really, Beach really Boys, they're a, little, they're a little nuts. They're hard to meet, yeah. But I met them <laughs> as a group. I went backstage to meet them. And Salvador Dali, that was an amazing evening for me. And that, there wow. I brought my spoons. Good. Yeah, because... Um, Did he melt them for you? Well, he put one in his ear instead of his eye. Oh, okay. I used to, I used to walk around with a spoon coming out of my eye like, like a monocle. Yeah. You know? Oh, my goodness. Like, I would, I would walk through the street like this as if I didn't know that I had a spoon in my eye. Right. It was a character I developed in the 70s, and Spoon Eye. As a matter of fact, Conan O'Brien... Oh, his name O'Brien, was Spoon Eye? Conan O'Brien <laughs> did that one night. <laughs> and, it, and, it came, and he took that from me. Well, not that that's something to be proud of, that you walk around with a spoon in your eye. But I, I did that, and so um, I had called Salvador Dali. I was driving the Pimpmobile still. Great. And, and Salvador Dali always stayed at a particular hotel when he was in Manhattan. It was a hotel on 55th Street, and there was the St. Regis Hotel, maybe, the King Cole Lounge. He would hold court there. Okay. So I called up the hotel. I pulled up in that car, and I, um, I said to the, the doorman, I did the same thing. Watch my car. Salvador Dali is expecting me. And the guy says, you're in luck. He just went in. I had heard he was in town. <laughs> So I was so naive. I went to the desk and I said, what room is Salvador Dali in? But they don't tell you. So I went back outside to the guy and I said, are you sure he's there? Because I just called his room and there was no answer. And he said, are you sure you called the right room? 1082. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I'll go try again. So now I had the room. So I call up and Salvador Dali answers the phone. I thought I'd have to go through 50 people to get him, right? Yeah. He answers the phone. 
And I start telling him, I knew there was no way I could freak out Salvador Dali. So I said to him, I told him that I was a surrealistic dentist, that I put the back teeth in the front and the front teeth in the back, (laughs) (laughs) and that we had met, and he told me to stay in touch with him. And he didn't answer me. All he said was, Sunday night, 7 o'clock, and he hung up the phone. That was it, Sunday night, 7 o'clock. So Sunday night, 7 o'clock, my wife says to me, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to meet Salvador Dali. And she, she knew not to ask. She goes, well, what are you going to tell him if he asks you why you're there? I said, he's never going to ask that. Why would he ask me why I'm there? He told me to come. But just in case, I took these two little spoons with me and some thumb hats that I had. Because I had, this girl made me hats for my fingers, and I really liked them. So I brought them and the two, the two eye spoons. I get to the St. Regis Hotel, and I'm waiting for him to come down. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if I'll recognize him. A guy with a mustache up to his eyes who comes out in August wearing a mink coat with a jeweled walking stick. And I'm wondering if I'm going to recognize him. So I'm sitting in a chair facing the elevator. He comes out and I walk over and for some reason I start speaking to him in Spanish. Yeah. I don't know why. And I, and I introduce myself, and I'm Jeffrey Gurian, and he says hello to me and then ignores me like I don't exist. And I'm walking next. I'm embarrassed. I don't know what to do. I'm running right. next to him like a puppy. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe I should leave. Maybe he doesn't want to talk to me. And I follow him into the King Cole Lounge where this whole group of people is waiting for him. And he starts introducing me to people like I'm his son. He, he went from ignoring me completely to introducing me to everyone. This is Jeffrey, and he tells people where to sit. We're at this long table, and Geraldo Rivera happened to be there that night. And he has me sit like two seats away from him. This beautiful girl comes in with a boyfriend. He separates them. He has the beautiful girl sit next to him. The boyfriend sits at the other end of the table. And sure enough, don't you think he asks everybody to tell them why they're there? Right? Yeah. Oh, now I'm great. sitting next to a girl with basketball weights on her arms and legs and on the other side is a French dwarf who's carrying <laughs> a huge portfolio of artwork. Right? It's a table full of freaks and it gets to me and I tell him I manufacture eye spoons. That that's why I'm there. And he says, what do you mean? So I take the spoon and I put it in my eye and I'm holding it and I have two of them. And he says, put them both in. And I said, <laughs> I, I said, if I put them both in, I won't be able to see. He said, do it. So I put both of them in. He takes one of the spoons and he tries to put it into his ear. But I have to school him on that. I'm like, they're only meant for your eye. <laughs> By the time I got up to the thumb hats, I think he had enough. And he said, next. Like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and all these people at the table were laughing at me. They think I'm crazy, right? right. I'm laughing at them because they are crazy. But I'm just doing my fucking eye spoon thing, right? I think still the, <laughs> the greatest oddity at this table has got to be Geraldo Rivera's mustache. He was there. Yeah, it's funny because I saw him in recent years, too. And we reminisced about that night because he remembered very well spending that evening with Salvador Dali. And at the end of the evening when they left... He took Geraldo out for dinner. Geraldo was there with some socialite. I don't remember yeah. who exactly who it was. And I offered them a ride in my orange pitmobile. Oh <laughs> they passed on that. They were just walking. But it was amazing. And I didn't have a camera, and I don't have a picture of me with Salvador Dali, and it's one of my greatest regrets. But at the end of the evening, he snapped his fingers like that, and the guy brought him his mink coat because it didn't matter to him what the season was. Right. And I tried to emulate that. I wear whatever I want all year round. (laughs) I wore a woolen suit on the beach at Puerto Rico (laughs) just to know what it felt like to be Salvador Dali walking along the beach in a heavy brown woolen suit. It doesn't feel good, by the way. No, I can't imagine that it does. It's not a good feeling. But he wore that mink coat, a full-length mink coat in August with a jeweled walking stick. Unbelievable. Yeah, I aspire to have a jeweled walking stick. Yeah, we're going to make that happen. Someday... It's going to happen. And I'm going to bring it to the Dress for Laughs Festival. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait. And walk in with a jeweled walk. Do you think that would be appropriate? It's going to be That's huge. Maybe with a spoon at the end. Holding, you know? a, holding a, a white cat with very long hair. Yeah, a white cat, jeweled, a jeweled spoon, a jeweled walking, <laughs> walking stick. stick. Exactly. And that'll be it, man. That's amazing. How That's often are you on uh, Ron and Fez? They do my promos every day. Okay. I, but I'm on live once a week with okay. a special guest every Thursday from 2 to 3. The next December 4th, I'll be bringing on Susie Essman as my guest. Awesome. I started with Colin Quinn was my first guest, and he kicked it off. He was amazing. Yeah. And then I brought on Artie Lang and Russell Peters. 
and and Lisa Lampinelli has been a wonderful guest, and Larry Miller. I bring on a really special guest every week, somebody yeah. that we have some history with, and and it's been fantastic. I love doing that show. That's great. Lisa and, Lampinelli is amazing, and her husband. He works the door at Gotham, and Jimmy. all I know about him is he has huge balls, uh, because Lisa constantly talks about it. So every time I see him, I, I just I just stare right at his package, and I'm sure it freaks him out quite a bit. They see each other more now that they're divorced than they did when they were married. We go out to dinner. You know, Lisa and I go out to shows together and stuff, and she always invites Jimmy, her ex-husband, and his new girlfriend, Jenna. And she supports Jenna. Lisa is all about positive energy. Yeah. So she lost 107 pounds, you know. Mm -hmm. Then after she had her surgery, Jimmy had his surgery. He said to her, if you survive, I'll do it. So they both lost over 100 pounds. And she's all about putting out positive energy out to the universe yeah. the same way I am. And exactly. So she's very close to Jimmy. They had a very amicable divorce. And she supports his new girlfriend, which is really very cool. That's awesome. Jeffrey, it's been so great to get to know you, man, and hear your stories. They're phenomenal. And Have I we been on the air, by the way? Or is this just the warm-up? This is just the warm-up, yeah. So, <laughs> Mike, we're ready recording? to start? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's great. Um, so check out his book, Make Him Laugh. And, uh, yeah, and uh, Ron and Fez, it'll be, uh, what, Thursdays 2 to 3, Thursdays Channel 99, three, Channel Raw 99, Dog. Raw Dog, that's where it's at, man. That's, that's where amazing. it's happening. And thank you so much for having me. Thank brother. you for coming in. That's Michael Fox. Fun. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Great to see you always. Always good to see you, too. So check out Michael Fox on Twitter. I'm at Ben Kissel. Uh, uh, at Jeffrey Gurian. And if, if you go to my website, it's uh, ComedyMattersTV.com. My YouTube channel, there's over 300 interviews with everybody from Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, yeah. John Stewart. It's at youtube.com slash Gurian News Network. GNN, Gurian News Network. Check awesome. it out. Uh, all right. Thank you, Mike Coscarelli. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Um, oh, and one more thing. Uh, Staten Island Looney Bin. Uh, check out Jeffrey Gurian. He's going to be there tonight at 8.30. 8.30 on Staten Island at the Looney Bin. Yeah, you're in Staten Island. you got nothing else to do. Come on. Go out and go, go see laughs. Jeff. Have cool. a few laughs and see the uh, the comedic legend that is Jeffrey Gurian. Thanks, man.